ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn uh, to that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Just go ahead and pick that up. And we're, our passage is going to be found in Luke 24. Uh, to help you out a little more, you'll find that passage on page 885. Page 885. Uh, as you do, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Tim Bedall, and I serve as the pastor of preaching here at Village Bible Church. And it is so great to see all of you uh, here with us this morning. And we want to invite you, uh, if you don't have a church home, uh, to consider uh, this place as, as a church home. And hopefully during your uh, visit with us and your uh, time with us, you'll see that uh, we love to uh, meet and interact with uh, uh, new people and to bring them uh, into uh, this great family that we call Village Bible Church. So I pray that you would uh, consider that this morning. Well, I know a lot of you, Easter is a great time. Easter is a time of great celebration. Many of you have family and friends with you this morning, and it's a, it's a great Sunday. I want to tell you there's one person that really doesn't like Easter Sunday, and that's the preacher. Um, it's a hard Sunday uh, to get up and preach. You're, you're amped up. Some say this is the Super Bowl of, of preaching, and, uh, uh, and we're reminded that uh, we need to make sure we bring our best sermon uh, to, uh, uh, to the service on Sunday because people are expecting it. They're bringing family and friends. They want their preacher to do a good job. And on Saturday, I'm putting final touches on a sermon, and, and God has given me a great wife, an understanding wife, and, and she is one of my best critics, except for yesterday. Um, I shared with her the importance of the Sunday, and she was sitting in the other room, and I said, can I just kind of preach real quickly my, my introduction to you? Um, remember, this is an important Sunday. I just want to make sure it's just right. And, and I'll tell you what, in Hinkley, the Word of God was being proclaimed in my dining room when I was preaching it to her, and I got done. I said, Amanda, what did you think? And there was silence. And I thought for sure she was mesmerized, transformed renewed in, in, in her understanding. She had never heard such eloquence and, and such amazing, uh, amazing speech to which she said, oh, oh, are you done? And I said, yeah. She says, it, it was good. It was good. And my heart was broken. I wanted to turn in my letter of resignation and uh, I had come to be a failure. She said she was a bit occupied. You know, her mind was in other places. And I prayed all day yesterday that you would not fall to the malady that my wife has. <laughs> Pray for her soul. And, uh, but I am hoping that you will not walk away, not for my own peace of mind, but that you would walk away uh, transformed this morning. I think a great story is before us. A story many of you may not know is a part of the Easter story, and, uh, and I'm encouraged by uh, what's going to transpire this morning. So let me just uh, pray for our time together, and then we'll jump in and we'll, we'll look at this story piece by piece, and hopefully by the end of it you'll, you'll have some new realizations uh, about this Easter story. Father God, we come before you, and, and first and foremost, we praise the name of the risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Without you and without your death and burial and resurrection, we would be nowhere. We would be lost in our sin. We would find ourselves still struggling of the guilt of, of our wrongdoing before you. But you sent Jesus to come, to die, to be our ransom so that we might be presented before you as pure and holy and blameless in your sight. And that's why we worship you. 
And that's why this day is so different than than every other day. And yet, Lord, we recognize while this day is different, we recognize we are called to live an Easter Sunday every day of our lives. And so, Lord, as we leave this place, that we wouldn't just leave it um, as a placeholder in March or, or April where we celebrate with family and friends, but it would be a celebration of your resurrected life in our lives each and every day. So, Lord, I pray that as we see two characters who, who miss part of the story, who struggle to understand the full ramifications of the Easter celebration, that we would embrace the whole story. And even more than the story, today, each and every person in this place would embrace the Savior, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, in 2010, CBS, the TV network, premiered a reality show entitled Undercover Boss. And it was a show that was featuring a high-positioned executive of an owner of, of a company or a corporation that would go undercover and be one of the everyday employees, one of the lower-level staff, an entry-level employee. And the executive would change his appearance, he would assume an alias, and he would create a fictional backstory so that nobody knew that it was really the CEO or the uh, executive of the company. The fictitious explanation for the accompanying uh, video cameras that would follow along and chronicle each week's story was that uh, this uh, entry-level employee found themselves being a part of a documentary about entry-level workers in a particular industry. And they wanted to know more about that particular employee. Little did they know that it was more about uh, them than it was, per se, just the CEO. They would spend a week as an undercover employee working in various areas of the company's operations with different jobs and in many cases different locations every day. They got to be a part of what it was to be an employee in their own company. And what was hoping to be accomplished was that the boss would be exposed to the series of of predicaments and, and the amusing results of the CEOs not being able to push a broom, the CEOs not being able to do what they pay minimum wage for someone else to do While they were making the big bucks, they found themselves unable to accomplish many of the things that they required others to do, which many times would change their idea of how they lead people, about the personal and professional challenges that they had in their business, and they would find themselves really looking at how they could help those who were under their care. Well, this morning, we come to a passage in Luke 24 where we have eyewitness accounts of two individuals who were there on the street in Jerusalem that first Easter um, weekend. And they're walking back and talking as they're heading home, and and Jesus becomes that undercover boss. You see, you're going to find out in our story today that at first glance, these two witnesses of the events of Easter uh, don't know that they're talking and walking with Jesus. But by the time that their time with Jesus is done, their eyes are opened and they see and and they say our hearts burned as he spoke with us. And we're going to see how their response to this first Easter uh, should be our response as well today. Well, notice in our text this morning that it starts in verses 13 and 14 of Luke 24. It says to us that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. 
about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. Let's stop there for a moment. Luke tells us that these two individuals uh, find themselves walking. But notice he starts with the phrase, that very day. What does he mean by that? What is he talking about? The answer is found at the beginning of Luke 24 that the very day that these two men were walking was the same day that the women went to the tomb to uh, take care of the body of Jesus. And when they get to the tomb, they have an angel appear to them and they are told that the tomb is empty, which they see with their own eyes, and that Christ has risen And they were called to go tell the eleven. That same very day, that first Easter Sunday, we are told that these men are heading home from Jerusalem. Now notice in the text that we learn later in the the text that these two men, in in verse uh, 17 or 18, we find out one of the men's name is Cleopas. The other man is unnamed. We don't know much about these two guys. But we can assume from the text that these men were followers of Jesus. Later in the text, they run to go tell the 11 remaining disciples um, that uh, they have met Jesus. So they have some working understanding of where the disciples are at and who the 11 are. So we can assume pretty easily that Cleopas and this unnamed man had some connections with the disciples and maybe even some personal connections with Jesus, but we're unsure. But we know, no doubt, they're followers of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Notice the text tells us where they're going. They're heading to a place called Emmaus. Emmaus was a city that was a seven-mile journey to the southeast of Jerusalem. Uh, So, you know, about as far as uh, we are from Yorkville, maybe a a couple miles shorter. But they didn't have cars, so they're journeying. And what would take some time for them to journey back home, they find themselves on their way back to their hometowns. Now notice in verse 14, they're talking and discussing together. The idea here of talking and discussing together uh, doesn't bring it out in our English translations, but in the original, Luke is saying they're having a pretty lively debate and discussion. Uh, They're pretty amped up about what they have seen. And so they're having a discussion that no doubt others, if they were walking the same way, would have heard what was going on. And the reason for this amped up nature of conversation was these two men had just been a part of one of the craziest weeks in Jerusalem's history. These men had been a part of seeing Jesus worshipped in his entry that Sunday before into the city of Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday, where men and women and children uh, lined the streets of Jerusalem and and welcomed the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, ushering in his his coming kingdom. Uh, Maybe they were a part of then that Thursday, the hasty betrayal and arrest and subsequent trials that would take place late Thursday night and into Friday. And if That wasn't bad enough. They would learn that Jesus on Friday morning would be beaten and flogged. That a crown of thorns would be placed on his head. That he would find himself carrying a cross up to a place called Golgotha, the the place of the skull, a hill outside of Jerusalem where they would take the most heinous of criminals and crucify them a slow and laborious death. They would find out that Jesus later on Friday afternoon would breathe his last. Maybe they were there when they saw Jesus commit his spirit to the Father. 
what that last breath meant was the death of a dream. They had followed Jesus. And now, things were going to get back to normal. It was time to go home. And so these two men, after being a part of a pretty amazing week, not not a good week, an amazing week though, would be on their trip. And on that trip, we're going to learn about who these guys are, how they feel, and what Jesus has to share with them that will change their circumstances. Notice in the text that Jesus is going to come and meet these guys on the road to Emmaus, and he's going to share some things with you. And I want you to notice three things this morning. First of all, we're going to see in our text that Jesus shares the Easter story with the broken. Write that down in your outline this morning. That Jesus shares the Easter story with the broken. Notice in verses 15 through 17, we know the logistics of of what's going on. Now notice what we learn. It says, when they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew himself near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Let's stop there for a moment. So we see that these guys have been a part of a pretty amazing week. And then we know from the story that they're walking and discussing uh, with great passion what's going on. And, and without any mention of where Jesus came from, all of a sudden he's there. Whether he was kind of following behind and they didn't see him or, or whatnot, all we know is Jesus is there and their conversation is loud enough that Jesus chimes in and asks the question, hey, what are you guys talking about? What is the reason for your conversation? And notice what the text says. They stop their walking and talking. And they look very sad. I want you to notice that these two men on the road to Damascus were men who were greatly disappointed. They were greatly disappointed. For some time, these two men had heard of Jesus. They had heard of his preaching and his many miraculous signs and wonders. They maybe were one of the ones that had gotten healed. Maybe they knew someone who had been transformed by Jesus. They had seen Jesus in his way of embracing the crowd, taking care of the hurting, engaging with the disenfranchised. They had seen Jesus share the word of God and speak the word of the prophets in a way that no other rabbi had ever done before. It's seen Jesus do amazing things. There had been talk these two had heard that this Jesus might have been the long-awaited Messiah. He was the one the nation of Israel had been waiting for. The one who had been promised by the prophets to rescue the people from hostility and captivity and bring Israel about abundance and peace to the entire nation and maybe just maybe, to the entire world. These two guys had come to know that Jesus had much going for him. Jesus was this man from Nazareth who had showed so much potential, who seemed to be so much more than just a man. The things that he had done seemed to give us the idea that he was a man from another place. But now that man was dead. 
just another victim of Jewish infighting and Roman tyranny. This Jesus who showed so much power over nature, so much power over demons, so much power uh, over uh, so many things that this Jesus would be no match for a Roman crucifixion. This man who had debated with such clarity and such amazing rhetoric with the Pharisees, who would fend off his critics with just a couple sentences, would have nothing to say before his accusers. Looking back to what these two men saw must have crushed their spirits. Now, what made them sad? I think there are two things that may have caused them to be sad. First of all, write this somewhere in your outline. I think these two men had their hopes crushed. I think their hopes were crushed. One of the saddest events in in American democracy, in my opinion, is the night night of election, especially the big ones, the presidential ones. Because what you will see is two groups of people who have spent hours, in fact days, maybe even years, helping to try to elect that man or woman into higher office with the idea that if we get this person elected, they'll help change the nation for the good. The things that are most important to me will be brought great effect because this person is the leader and the, and the speaker and, and the president or, or congressman that we've been waiting for. But on that night of the elections, after all that toiling and that working without ceasing for that one purpose of electing that person, even when you are the victor, your heart has to go out a little bit to those broken-hearted people who have worked so hard who thought things were going to be different, when you see that losing campaign headquarters and the brokenness, all of the time that was wasted, the energy that was expended for something that was not to be. But I want you to notice the sadness of these two men goes deeper than any election because Jesus wasn't just the hope of a nation. He spoke the words of how men and women could have a deeper and and greater relationship with God. How how God sought the forgiveness and, and favor that he wanted to pour out on his people, but that that would be done through a spokesperson, a, a one who would come in the power of the Spirit of God, who would change and transform lives and bring people back to their God and King. Jesus had caused people to repent, to make right with their God. But now he was gone. And now these two men had no idea what their relationship with God looked like. Their hopes were crushed. I want you to notice, secondly, I think, that their sadness came as a result of humiliation. Humiliation. I wonder if these two men had shared Jesus with others. I wonder if their excitement... At some point in the three and a half years of Christ's earthly ministry, these men had told the people they work with, the people that they have in their family, their circle of friends, that they had at some point told people, he's the real deal. I put my trust in him. Maybe they showed themselves to be so excited about it. I mean, think about it. They had gone seven miles 
To go to Jerusalem that very weekend, uh, that's not something that you would do all that often in, in first century times. You didn't get that far away from home. But these people, no doubt, these two, had been acquainted with the ministry of Jesus. And because of their acquaintance with the 11 disciples, it sure does seem that they had been sold out for the ministry of Jesus Christ. That they were a part of maybe some inner circle of disciples. But now Jesus was dead. And they were going to go back home to the family and to the friends and to the others that they had shared this Jesus with. This Jesus that they had lifted up as being the one. He's the guy. He'll never lose. He'll never be defeated. And now that first Easter they go home and they have to tell their family and friends, you know what? I was wrong. That Jesus that I got all hyped up about, that Jesus that that I was telling you you needed to come and see, that Jesus that I I may have been giving my money, time, and energy to, i got to go home now and i got to tell the people closest to me I had bought into a lie. I believed something that wasn't true. I fell into all the hoopla. I believed in a guy that's the biggest mistake I've ever made. These men were greatly disappointed. All of that reminds us of our own disappointments in life. All of us, no doubt, have experienced this disappointment at some place in our earthly lives. When things haven't gone as we would want them to, where our hopes and expectations in one one, um, fell swoop find themselves being eradicated. Where, where the blue skies and sunny skies of joy and peace are rapidly replaced with storm clouds. We've all been there at some time or another. Many of you know, as we shared last week, that this idea of disappointment with our circumstances comes from a real place. I, I don't have to speak hypothetically about this. As our family has to come to the grips of the diagnosis of breast cancer in my wife's life, we understand the moments where you feel cheated, the moments where you feel wronged, where you feel like you've given so much and so little has been given in return, the feeling of hopelessness and and helplessness that easily overtakes you in those moments. These are the feelings that these two men had facing them. But in that moment, for these two men of great disappointment, and in our moment of great disappointment today, we are given in our text good news. The good news is found in verse 15 in the phrase that Jesus himself drew near and went with him. While these two men were filled with sadness and left with unanswerable questions in human speaking, they knew one thing. They were not alone. While they were reeling from what had transpired in the moments in Jerusalem that week, now a stranger was with him, asking questions, allowing them in some way maybe to take their mind off of their sadness. Now notice in verse 16 that the text tells us that when Jesus appeared, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What does that mean? How could they not know that it was Jesus? Well, scholars help us with this, and and they address four reasons maybe why 
these men on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus. First of all, from the text we are told that it may have been dark. Write that down somewhere, because it'll be a question maybe someone will ask. Maybe it was dark. Our text tells us later in the text that it was towards evening in verse 29, and that the day is now far spent, meaning it was later in the day, maybe even early evening. And so maybe because of no use of electricity, of course, or probably much in the way of, of lanterns, the road to Emmaus was a dark one. And maybe Jesus just wasn't recognized because they couldn't see his face. Secondly, it could have been that they were so distraught when they said that they were sad, they were so distraught that in that moment, they weren't thinking about a risen Savior and Lord. They were thinking about all their hopes being destroyed. And maybe in their place of being distraught, their emotions had gotten the best of them and and had caused them not to pay real close attention. So it was dark. Maybe it was because they were distraught. Maybe it was that they were distant followers of Jesus. That maybe they had never spent a lot of time up close and personal with Jesus. We know from the Gospels that uh, tons of people would follow Jesus wherever he went. That even the day that he served the 5,000, we are told that they were counting the 5,000 men in the crowd, that it could have easily swelled to fifteen or 20,000 people. No doubt in a group that size, many people would have been maybe in ears distance, if you will, to hear the voice of Jesus, but never to have seen his face. Maybe they had never seen Jesus up close and personal. The final reason may be, it was dark, they were distraught, they were distant followers, Or maybe Jesus disguised himself. Jesus being the God-man in his resurrected uh, body, he may have looked incredibly different. Now we're not sure about that because at other times when when Jesus comes face to face as he does with the disciples, after being afraid for a moment because Jesus is standing before them, they recognize him right away. In the first part of Luke 24, we see that Mary doesn't fully recognize Jesus. That, uh, that Jesus is, that they, she mistakes him as the gardener near the tomb. We don't know. And that's all we can apply from that text. We can speculate one of those things, and all of those are, are plausible explanations, but we don't know. But here's what the more important thing is. That you and I can take solace in the fact that Jesus was with these men right where they were at, and he engaged with them. What I mean by that is he didn't pull away from them and say, until you get your lives figured out, until you stop crying, I'm not going to hang out with you. He he doesn't say, uh, I'm going to wait for you to come and find me. He's not like, you know what? I was put on the cross. I was put in a tomb. I've been raised from the dead. You come find me. I'm done going out and looking for you people. He doesn't say that. But what he does is he draws near to them. And he does what he said he was going to do, and that is to seek and to save that which was lost. He did that that first Easter, and he's doing it every Easter since, including today. Jesus is drawing near to us. He's drawing near to us, and he's coming to us right where we're at. And that means Jesus hears your cries, he knows your pains, and he wants to dispel your fears. He wants to see you and me up close and personal. Because when he looks out at humanity, the text tells us earlier in the Gospels 
that he saw the crowd and he saw they were harassed and hurting people like sheep without a shepherd. And when he saw that, the only emotion that came to him was one of full compassion. That's why 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us to cast all our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us. That's why Psalm 34, 8 says, The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Maybe this morning, Easter's not a time of celebration for you, but a time of great disappointment and sadness. Take solace that the risen Savior and Lord is one who has a special place in his heart for you. He loves you. He wants to draw near to you. He wants to walk and talk with you no matter how difficult your journey is. He loves the broken. And what we're going to see is little did they know that their brokenness was going to be changed, their hopes were going to be renewed, and the answer to their problems was right before their eyes. You see, Jesus starts talking to them. And notice, as Jesus begins to talk with them, we see their brokenness comes as a result of them being bewildered about the story of Easter. Write that down. That they were bewildered. Well, I think it would have been easy for Jesus in that moment. Notice in in the text, in in verse 17, and, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Let's just stop there for a moment. Jesus could have made it easy, and when he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, could have said, ta-da, I'm back. Can't you see me? But he doesn't. Now, why wouldn't Jesus do that? Why, in essence, is he wasting his time not telling them? He starts with a question, and the question helps us To understand what these two guys were thinking about. It gives us a window into their minds and heart as to what was going on. And we see within this that they are bewildered. And they're bewildered for two reasons this morning. Number one, they were bewildered because they were believing in half the story. They were believing in half the story. Notice Cleopas starts speaking. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they went back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as just as the women said. But him they did not see. Let's stop there for a moment. Cleopas shares the story. And in this story, Cleopas shares the most ironic words of all of human history. Were you, were you the only visitor to Jerusalem who did not know the things that had happened there? Do you know how ironic that statement is? Jesus, even though they don't know it's Jesus, hey dude, 
Are you the only one in Jerusalem this week that didn't see what happens? Jesus is the one who uniquely knew what had happened. He had been there. Not only had he been an eyewitness, he was the one who endured every one of those things. And here's the irony of it. In their moment of sadness, they spoke to Jesus as if he was the ignorant one. And they had all the answers. You know, we do that all the time with God. We think we have got the corner on the truth with regards to our circumstances and issues. And we shake our fist at God and say, you don't know what's going on. You don't know how I'm feeling. You haven't been around here. And and God retorts back to us, I'm the omnipresent before anything was in existence. I am. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the one that was there yesterday, the one who will be here today, and the one who will be here forever. And these two men find out early on that it's not Jesus, this stranger who was flighty or dense. It was them. And Jesus says, okay, tell me what things are going on. And notice a couple things about what the story is told. First of all, Cleopas and the unnamed other individual have all the right information. All the truths that we gain from what they say about what transpired in Jerusalem is absolutely true. We have no contention with anything they've said. They've got the facts down. Second, they were keenly aware of the plans and purposes of Jesus' ministry. The text says to redeem Israel. They've got it. They've got a corner on the truth with regards to that. Third, they were aware of the inside details of the women going to the grave. And seeing the body was gone and seeing an angel and and being told what the angels told them, that he was alive. They were aware of all that. But here's the problem. They only knew half of the story. It says at the end of this, but him, Jesus, they did not see. And so at some point, because they didn't see Jesus on that Easter Sunday... They figured all hope is lost, that some of their group are hallucinating or something, and so they're going to give up hope and they're going to head home. And because of that, they have not heard the words at this point of Paul Harvey on the radio who tells them to wait for the rest of the story. What were they missing? They were missing the resurrection. After all, the story is told that they did not see him. Let me remind you this morning that the Easter story is not just about a cross or a tomb of a great teacher or leader, but it must always involve the most important event, and that is the empty tomb and our risen Savior and King. Without that, we have a story of a great teacher, of a great martyr who died way too soon. We must affirm the whole story of Easter as Martin Luther did when the reformers said that all of Christianity is hinged upon the truth of the resurrection. Our whole faith is bound up in what is symbolized today. That Jesus Christ is not in a grave, but he has risen just as he said he would do. Because if we don't have that, let me, let me just be honest with you this morning. If Jesus is in a grave, you and I are wasting our time here. Paul says that if we do not believe that the resurrection is true, and if Jesus, in fact, was not resurrected from the grave, Christians should be people pitied among all men because we are wasting our time, our energy, our focuses on a dead king who said he was alive. 
The Bible speaks of this truth over and over again. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And it's a truth we must hold tightly to because without it, we've got nothing. Notice their bewilderment also came because they were consigning Jesus. They were consigning Jesus to history. Notice for a moment, just through the passage very quickly, how they speak of Jesus. In verse uh, 21, notice what they say. I'm sorry, go back to uh, um, verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, help me out, who was. Let's go on to verse 21. It says, but we had hoped, past tense. Now go down to verse, end of verse 21. It is now the third day since these things happened. This is the great temptation of skeptics today. They have no problem saying all that Cleopas had said. Jesus was a good man. A man who has ascribed great power. A man who is a great teacher. A man who is a great model. A man who is a deep thinker. An amazing humanitarian. A, a man, and many will even say, even the staunchest of atheists will say, Jesus was a man who is as great as they come. History is defined by people like Jesus. But with all those accolades, they will always speak of Jesus in the past tense. He was a great teacher. He was a great model. He was a deep thinker. He was an amazing man. But he is no more. And that makes Jesus one of the most perplexing individuals of all time. Because he was all these things, but now he's dead. He's just as the rock star sang, just dust in the wind. But here's the problem. That homage to Jesus doesn't add up. I have family and friends who, who think it's great that I'm a preacher of the great teacher of Jesus. Because people need to hear Jesus' words. But when I say to them, but do you believe him to be the Son of God? Do you believe him to be your Lord and Savior? To which they will get all kinds of angry with me and say, no. Great man, yes. Savior and King, no. Herein lies the problem with that. If you this morning, and I want to share this with great respect where you're at, if you believe that Jesus was a great man and a great teacher, and had profound impact on the world and history. Here's the problem. That same man who, who said, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and, and who did such wonderful things, that man also said he was the son of God. That man also said that he would judge the nations. That man said that he was equal with God in heaven. That man said that he would be the one who would come back and bring this world under his feet. He said all of that. And when you start bringing that up to agnostics or those skeptics, here's the three conclusions you can come to. That though Jesus had great things to say, then he must have been a liar on the other stuff. Because that stuff isn't true in your opinion. So we had this great man, this great teacher and all that, who, who conspired with the greatest lie known in human history. He lied. 
Or you have to contend this morning that if he wasn't a liar, he was a lunatic. That he did all these great things and he was amazing, but, but as brilliant people sometimes come, they're, they're off their rockers. And, and so we look at some of Jesus' sayings and say, man, he's a crazy man. He, he believed things that weren't true. Or he was Lord. And what he said was absolutely true. And that then brings a problem for those who are bewildered this morning. Because if he is in fact true, if he in fact is telling us the truth, then skeptic, you've got a problem. Because you can't say Jesus is good on one side of your thoughts, but then say he's crazy or a liar in the other sense. He must be Lord. So these guys are bewildered. They don't know what to make of this. They're disappointed. They find themselves believing half the story. They've consigned Jesus to history, meaning he was great, but he's no more. And we see it by the end of the passage. They're believing. And so what happens? Notice, Jesus shares the story of Easter so that we might believe. The men have shared their thoughts on Easter. It's incomplete. It's flawed. And so notice in the text, Jesus starts sharing with them. And he says, first of all, in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe that the prof- all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, the things he interpreted to them, all the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village to which they were going. They're in Emmaus. And he acted as if they were, he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It is towards evening, and the day now is far spent. So he stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scripture? And then they rose at the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. And those that were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told all that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. They go from skeptics and saddened individuals to believers. How? The same way you and I do. How do we become believers in that Easter? First of all, it involves being changed by Jesus. Being changed by Jesus. Their encounter with Jesus changed them. And in a moment, everything changed for them. They went from being bewildered, broken people to believers. And today, it's no different. The Easter story is the story that changes people's lives. It takes the broken and bewildered, and it moves them to believe in the Savior. It begins with conviction. Jesus says, oh, you who are foolish... They're foolish because they've chosen sin and and their circumstances over a Savior. They were stubborn. They were not quick of hearing. They chose their own way instead of believing the promises of God that Easter. We too are like them, proud, not wanting to follow God's ways, but our own. Even though God has spoken his word through the prophets and through his written word that we have before us, we choose over and over again to go our own way. And yet amidst all of that sin, God loved us and demonstrated that love for us while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus shares the totality of that scripture that points to one amazing truth. 
Jesus is the Savior of sinful men, who by his death, burial, and yes, his resurrection, gives new life to all who will turn from their sins and believe. But how do we know we believe? Notice that belief will lead to us wanting to commune with him. They hear these things of Jesus And even before they know who he is, they are awestruck. We want to spend time with this guy. Their story isn't done. They want to know more. They want to learn more. And and they commune with Christ. And, And it's in that moment when they're sharing a meal around the table that Jesus shares what he did the night he was betrayed. He took bread and 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 a cup and, and he said, This is my body and this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's in that moment that they find out they're not communing with a stranger, but their Savior. You want to know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? It's not knowing the story. It is what is your deepest desire. Is it to walk and talk with Jesus? To be close to him? To live for him each and every day? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Not so that we carry big Bibles or know a lot of Bible facts. It's about communing with the one who has given us the answer to our broken hearts. Notice that believers also will see it as a great opportunity to celebrate with others. Why do they celebrate? They run to the 11. They find them and all that are assembled with them. And they say, you're not going to believe what happened. We were walking to a manse and this stranger came. And we told him all that had happened, how brokenhearted we were. And And this guy starts telling us all that the prophet said about the Messiah. And then we sat down at a meal, and he breaks the bread, and he gives us the wine. And we see it's Jesus. And right when we see it's Jesus, he's gone. We've seen the risen one. And did our hearts not burn as he spoke the words to us? They went out and did what every believer should do. They went and told the story to others. So this morning, let me ask you as I close, are you broken this Easter? Are there trials and troubles in your life that have you helpless and hopeless? Are you bewildered? Is Easter a perplexing celebration because you only believe half the story or you have consigned Jesus to a place in history? If so, my my, uh, greatest desire is to implore you to take a second look at Jesus. He's alive. He's the Savior and Lord. And these two men were in your shoes and and they say their hearts were burning. And maybe this morning, as you've heard this, maybe church isn't your Sunday morning appointment, but by the Spirit, your heart is burning this morning as you hear these truths. I pray by the Spirit's help, you will experience, listen, a little bit of heartburn this morning. And that you will yield yourself to the claims and control of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, then Easter is no different than any other Sunday, and sadly, you've wasted your time. But be careful, because I believe your eternity hangs in the balance. But if you believe, I'll tell you, he'll change your life forever. He'll be with you and walk with you in the darkest of journeys, and he'll give you the answers you need for hope for today and a hope for an eternity. So my hope and prayer this morning is that before you leave this place, before you get that donut, before you get that cup of coffee, before you leave, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you would talk to the person sitting next to you. You would come and talk with me, one of the other people at the Welcome Center. We want to share the good news of Jesus Christ in greater detail with you and what it means to be a follower of His. 
and so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a believer. God bless you all. Thank you for coming. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as, as we close our time in a word of prayer. Father God, we come and we praise the name of Jesus this morning. And as we close out our service, Lord, I pray that if anyone is here who has never trusted you as their Savior, today would be the day of salvation. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit's help and direction, you would encourage our hearts to take a closer look at you and the whole story of Easter and how you have come to change men and women, to save them from their sins and to give them a new purpose and vision in life so that we might live for you. Lord, I pray for those who have trusted you already that they would be quick this Easter to tell others the story, excited about the change that you've made in our lives. Lord, I pray that before this day is done, we will know without a shadow of a doubt that we are no longer broken, bewildered people, but that we're believers in the risen Savior and King. We love you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.